You are listening to Adventures in Sustainable Business with Jurgensen and Peterson. Join the adventurous exploration of sustainable business. Okay. In this episode of uh, Adventures in Sustainable Business, Weinung, we are going to uh, dig into the G of ESG, so to speak. It's uh, time to talk about corporate governance as it relates to sustainable business and more specifically the role uh, of CEOs, of top management and of board of directors for sustainability and sustainable business. And who could then be a better guest to invite than Georg Warnecke, who is an assistant professor at the Strategy and Business Policy Department at HEC Paris, where he is also affiliated with the Society and Organizations Institute. Welcome to Adventures, Georg. Thanks for, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. One of the first things, Weinung, that we were supposed to do when this thing called COVID-19 arrived in the world was that we had even booked flights to go to Paris for the uh, research day at the Society and Organizations Institute at, at HEC. And we are, I mean, our, our, our tears are just now dry. Uh, so <laughs> that's, how, that's, how, almost, that's almost two years ago. How is I life in, in Paris, uh, Georg? Yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, could we say it was like a roller coaster a little bit? Huh? So it, uh, it hit me right doing my teaching. So I had to move online within a few days' notice. Uh, had to use a tool called Zoom. I've never heard about before, uh, and now two years later, you 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 know it's 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 a usual thing of our teaching, a usual teaching tool. So it has been a bit of a roller coaster, I have to say, uh, but it looks like life is slowly but surely getting back to normal. So I'm hopeful for this year. I was hopeful for last year too, but I know this year, 2022, is just going to be fantastic. So uh, we're going to have the research day in May. So I hope to see you guys around uh, in May uh, here in Paris. We're envious, you know, for you living in Paris, but we haven't been very envious the last couple of years living inside a, an apartment and not having contact with with the students. I guess you're back now to campus, open open school, meeting people again, and, and perhaps also visiting some of those lovely cafes, I hope. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, you know, knowing the French, right, cafes and restaurants are probably the last things are going to close. <laughs> so they were closed for a little while uh, within those two years. But for most of the times, they were actually left open. Uh, we would usually sit outside. It would be a bit cold, but that's fine. You know, as long as the cafe and restaurants are open, uh, life goes on. And, and interestingly, so I've taught face to face many of my sessions throughout the pandemic. So I've, I've t- I'm, t- I'm usually teaching and the MBA program here, and it's very, very international. It's 97% non-French. And the government gave us an extra permit to be allowed to teach face-to-face to also break through potential isolation issues that students would have, right? They would come here from far away, uh, sit you in their room, have to be confined to stay here, cannot see any, you know, any of their friends, any of their family, or any of their potential new friends. So we get a special permit to continue teaching face-to-face. Of course, it meant I had to double my teaching because we had to half the group size. So, you know, the students could see each other, but they had to sit five meters away from one another. So, But at least they could wave to one another. So, yeah. But it, now we're back to full capacity and restaurants are open up again, uh, also inside, also cafes. So so life, life is almost there now. We invited you here in Georg to talk about the the, the G in ESG, governance. Uh, we just talked about COVID. Is that kind of a governance issue i mean just on, on both on the micro level of a university like this and also more on the general level globally and and uh, and so on 
Yeah, I mean, so if you ask me, if somebody for whom uh, the DG is dear to my heart, everything is a governance issue, right? <laughs> so whatever question you ask, if you, if you look at the, at the level of a municipality, uh, of a town, of a village, of a family, uh, of a company, uh, of a tribe, uh, of a partnership, there's always governance involved. So every question, including COVID, of course, is a governance question. Um, but I have to say that in my research, of course, I focus on the G usually in companies, uh, mainly in, in for-profit companies, right? But again, I think uh, governance is, is at every single place we can imagine in our lives, including potentially our relationships. And we are meeting our executive students, in fact, next week uh, in the executive program, Sustainable Business Strategy. And the topic for that uh, particular session is really related to, in a broad sense, I would say, the, the governance issues and also organizational issues on how to organize for you know, delivering on sustainability performance. And, and one of the questions that I know that many of these guys, some of whom are, are uh, you know, C-suits, uh, some of whom are uh, sort of further down in organizations, many of whom sit on boards. I know that this governance question, as it relates to sustainability and sustainable business, is, is important to them, and, and they have a lot of questions around, around that. And I think one overarching question, which I think we'll spend some time digging into from various corners, but you know, uh, in relation to a recent paper that, that you wrote uh, with Miha Cycle, uh, how much influence do CEO act, uh, CEOs have on company actions and outcomes as it relates to corporate social responsibility? So that could be a place to start, perhaps. If we think about the CEO, how important is the CEO for uh, a company's performance on these uh, issues? Yeah, so I mean, in a nutshell, right? So if, if, if you want to dive off a little bit, your students uh, next week, then I give you the answer in a nutshell, in, in one sentence. They matter a lot. <laughs> um, and here's another long, the long answer. Um, it, it's a very difficult question to answer, actually. Right? It seems very simple, like how much does the CEO matter? But if you really think about it, it's not sure if the CEO matters a lot, a little, or just in certain circumstances. Right? So there's, there's a few theoretical views, but although a few commentators or, or analysts who would say CEOs don't matter much. Right? Companies will be successful. There's, there's hundreds of thousands sometimes of employees. There's thousands of suppliers involved. There's thousands of customers involved. There's millions of different shareholders who all contribute to the success of a company. So why would a single person, I mean, of course, that single person is on the apex of the organization. But why would a single person in, in, in such a big organization, in such a complex machine, you could say, have that much influence? Right? And then, of course, there are others who say, no, 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 no. It's like a ship. You know, if the captain screws up, then the whole ship might go back. Yeah, so CEOs matter a lot. And so this is a very difficult question to ask. Uh, you can also think, if you know, you can also think about it in, in different contexts. So if you think about a football team, how much does a star striker matter or the coach, right? If, if you train, uh, I don't know, Manchester City or Bayern Munich, how difficult is it not to become the champion, <laughs> right? So do, do coaches matter? Uh, do individual players matter? And if so, how much? And that's exactly the question we wanted to ask in the context of, of ESG here, or sustainability. So we know that the CEOs matters from prior research. We know that certain characteristics of CEOs matters, right? But we don't know how much CEOs matter, right? If they just matter a little bit, then why care about different characteristics and how they relate to more or less engagement in sustainability? But if CEOs matter quite substantially, then it is extremely important to understand who are they, uh, how do they think, why do they think the way they do? And what can I do from a governance perspective, maybe to in encourage them to do more of it 
or maybe to encourage them to do other things. So this is basically the main driver of the question uh, that, that we wanted to ask here. Uh, and we have asked it in the context of sustainability. So basically estimating how much of the variance in sustainability over time within firms and across firms you can attribute to the CEO as opposed to factors related to the firm, factors related to the industry, or just general changes in norms. So um, if I can explain a little bit more here. So uh, norms are changing. Uh, what has you know what we think is right or wrong changes over time. So that's a general change in norms. So when we see that firms change their practices, engage more in sustainability, uh, the question here would be how much is due to the CEO or how much is due to generally changing norms and expectations of customers or of governance, for example. Right? So increasingly, customers expect the companies whose products or whose, whose products they buy to be sustainable or to at least reduce their environmental footprint, for example, right? or to conduct responsible businesses. So then if we observe a change in, in, in companies' practices over time, it might not due, be due to the CEO, but due to general changes in the norms. Similar to industries, right? Some industries are under more pressure to change their practices. Some are less. Some industries are more at the forefront of changing their business practices. Others are less. So how much of the changes we observe across firms and within firms over time is actually driven by simple changes in the industry? And then there's another factor, namely that is factors related or a whole set of factors related to firms themselves. Some firms are close to bankrupt, being bankrupt, have strong difficulties just to staying afloat, uh, maybe due to COVID, right? Uh, you know, their sales channels broke down. They might have to lay off huge chunks of, of, the, of their, their employees and so on and so on. Other companies, let's say Apple, for example, or, or you know, those in e-commerce, they thrive. They're financially rich. They're cash rich. Uh, they have all the slack resources. So how much of the, of the differences in sustainability or engagement in sustainability can we attribute to a company just being almost bust or another company being very cash rich? And some of the differences can be explained by those factors. So the question we were asking is, if you control for the factors that you can simply um, explain by changes in generally held norms, in differences in norms between industries, and then factors related to the firm, is the firm performing well or is the firm performing poorly? Has the firm always been engaged in sustainability, historically being at the forefront of it? Or is it a new thing? Giving all these factors, how much of the variance that is left over once you account for all these factors can you explain by the CEO? And this is quite substantial. In the end, it ends up to be roughly a third of the variance here. It's not the most important factor, so factors related to the firm, so how well the firm does financially, for example, matters slightly more. But the CEOs are the second most explanatory factor of the variance in sustainability. So, again, in a nutshell, the answer is they matter really a lot. I can't uh, let go of your football parallel, of course. <laughs> and I was thinking about this, um, you know, how, how sometimes when a football team has a star striker, as you say, they, they uh, need to replace him for some reason uh, or her. And um, the question then is, you know, do, do, you, do, you, replace, do you replace like like for like or do you go for some different, you know, how much does the system matter? How much does the player matter? And you talked about this uh, you, you, in passing. You mentioned, for instance, well, some firms have a history of being, you know, of caring about sustainability, perhaps even before the current CEO was there, and they might continue doing so afterwards. Other companies might perhaps have been influenced by the CEO to start embracing sustainability. So I guess my question is something along the lines of how, you know, to, to, to what extent is it 
the CEO as a person and as a personality, you know, and the traits of of that particular CEO. And to what degree is it, you know, the if you will, the function of the CEO or the the sort of the CEO more as a as some you know uh, factor in the broader management and governance of the company embedded into that cult- specific culture, that particular history of the company, you know, how much is the person versus the role, if you will, uh, mattering here? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a, again, I mean, technically it's a very tricky question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in a way, that's why we use variance petitioning, right? We want to understand, okay, uh, accounting for all these factors related to the system and how well the company does, how much on average do CEOs matter? So how much of the variance that is left, they can explain, Right. Um, but the technique we are using is, is pretty new, and it's a certain variant of the variance comp- uh, decomposition method here, because it accounts exactly for, or it accounts for CEO effect in a specific way that differs from how other methods measure it. The specificity of this method is that it compares how much does a new CEO who comes in change the sustain- sustainability trajectory of a firm compared to the predecessor. And other methods don't do that specifically. They would compare the contribution of a specific CEO to all the CEOs in the company that have ever been there. So that might be a CEO who has been there 30 years ago, but it might also include CEOs who come maybe in the future because we use very, very big data sets of company sustainability over 30, 40 years to uh, to tease apart the effect of the different um, factors, for example, the CEO or the firm factors. So this method is specific in that it actually compares the contribution of a new CEO to the predecessor. So you could you could become a new CEO in a company that is at the forefront of sustainability. Then usually the changes are not that much compared to your predecessor because you're already at the forefront. But imagine you become a CEO at a company that has never heard about sustainability, never cared about it, and never have done anything that you would, you would, would call sustainable practices. So then a CEO can change a lot. And it looks like it, 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 the CEOs can change a lot. So there's, of course, differences in, in the rooms of what we could say improvement of sustainability performance here that differs across firms. And the method we're using accounts for that specifically. Yeah? Because exactly as you say, it is super important to understand that a, the same CEO in two different organizations, one at the forefront of sustainability and one which doesn't do any sustainable uh, practices or engage in any sustainable practices at all, can have a very differential impact. Yeah? And that needs to be accounted for. But there's a second part in in your question that I find is super interesting, uh, and that is about what we call endogenous matching. <laughs> so it, obviously managers are not randomly matched to firms, right? I mean, there's a process there. Firms look for a certain CEO. Usually, the board says, "Okay, these are the the specifics that we have for the future CEO." And more often than not, now it includes um, dimensions related to sustainability. Right? Does the CEO is interested in increase in, in sustainability? Has the CEO a history of increasing uh, the prior employer's sustainability performance and things like this? So if the selection of the CEO into firms is actually driven by those factors, which we can usually not observe, we do have an issue of, of what we call endogeneity. Yeah? So we attribute, we incorrectly attribute changes in the firm's performance to the CEO, while it is actually to the board, for example. Yeah. And that, of course, needs to be accounted for. In the research, we do that. And what we use is, is a practice that's quite interesting. I think it's quite interesting. It's kind of cool. We look at what we call exogenous turnover <laughs> or planned turnover. So exogenous turnover is the CEO dies <laughs> because, um, I mean, I shouldn't laugh. The CEO <laughs> dies. Uh, maybe <laughs> that person is, 
is sick or the person might step down because maybe somebody in the family is sick. Um, and we also include cases where there is a pre-specified pre -specified, um, age of retirement. So some companies uh, specify that the CEO has to retire at the age of 65 or 66 or 63 or something like this. So in those circumstances, when the CEO has to leave the post due to exogenous reasons or is scheduled to leave, it is unlikely that the board, for example, wanted to change the trajectory of the firm. Right? The exchange in the CEO position is not because the board is unhappy with the CEO, maybe for reasons related to financial performance or sustainability performance, but just because the person turned 65 or the person died or became severely sick. So in those cases, it is less likely that we have that we have this endogenous matching driving the effect that we observe. So a board picking a CEO specifically or firing a CEO specifically because the CEO uh, is doing poorly on, on certain dimensions. And even if we do this, the effect is pretty stable. <laughs> so even if we address this concern that, that managers do not randomly match with firms, um, the effect is pretty stable. So I'm pretty confident to say top managers matter quite a lot. Yeah. And it's important to consider the circumstances uh, and the, as you, as you call it, the system of the, or the characteristics of the firm that they enter as a CEO. I have to admit, I'm, I'm going back to football again and trying to understand <laughs> the different roles here. This will happen again. Yes, but you guys were talking about the, the star striker. And the star striker is not the CEO, right? That's more like the manager. And then you also have the board of directors. And as you opened up, when you explained this, you said that the, the CEO in a firm, it has multiple suppliers, owners, employees, customers. There's so many things going on. Uh, so at... In, at at one hand, you're saying it, it means a lot. And at the other hand, you're saying, well, it, it depends. Uh, and then in your studies, as I understand it, you have found out that it does matter, uh, but you have to understand the, the, the circumstances. Because I was thinking then in, in football terms, and I was thinking of a, a favorite case of, of, of Lars Jakob and I, uh, Forest Green Rovers. I don't know if you heard of them. It's the, it's the greenest football club, soccer club, football club uh, in the world. And Lars Jakob, wasn't that an owner coming in uh, who then uh, uh, redirected the, the, the strategy, the sustainability strategy of this company? I think he's owner and CEO, in fact, as, as I recall. I think he's also uh -huh. the CEO. So, I mean, and you said here, um, different players, not, not football players, but, but, but actors, players in this, in this corporate game and, and the board of directors versus the, the managers. But you, you agree, right? That the, the star striker, as Lars Jakob said, that's, that has nothing to do with the CEO. It's, it's more like the manager's role. And then you also have the team, you have the sponsors, you have the fans, you have the quality of the league. <laughs> There's so many things that comes to play with the, with the quality of football, right? And then, and then, and then going back then to the, the CEO's role here as a manager, then say of a football team or of a company that produces chocolate or cars or travel and so on. Do you have any like favorite stories, not from football then, but do you have some favorite stories about uh, CEOs coming into to a company that has not been sustainable, for instance, uh, and that has done changes and what kind of changes 
can a CEO or a football manager really do? Uh, it's always tricky to, to, to bring in uh, examples here, right? Because <laughs> we use them to illustrate something. And of course, there's always more to the story. Uh, as, as you say right now, right? there's so many things. And, and just to acknowledge this up front, there's a lot of the variants that we cannot explain, the, what we call unexplained. And a lot of the things you just said there, they probably fall into the category here. But we don't have the method yet to estimate the contribution of every individual actor here, right? But nevertheless, I, mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a pretty robust method and it's a good start to estimate, for example, how much a coach or a CEO can matter or, or does not matter. But to come back to your question, let me give you an example of, of a company that I, I, I follow quite closely, and that is uh, Danone, right? So one of the big uh, uh, food producers uh, in, in Europe and also in, in North America, very, very active. Um, had a CEO uh, who had to leave um, roughly a year ago, March last year, Emmanuel Faber, who was very, very strong in pushing the company. The company has always been engaged in, in corporate social responsibility, right? So let me start there. So since its foundation, since it has started in Spain, actually started off as a producing yogurt to address a certain sickness of in, within kids. So it's always been uh, interested in in more than just making profits when producing food. And has always been uh, in, uh, interested in, in allowing us to produce food more sustainably. But of course, it's a mass producer of food. Uh, it's serving a market that is price conscious here. So there's a lot of trade-offs that the company had to do. One thing I found remarkable is that Emmanuel Faber was really pushing the company to do even way more than it did before. And again, it's not a niche producer of something, right? So it's not the the highly expensive eco food that we can buy in certain stores where there's absolutely no packaging and so on, which a large part of the society or consumers might not want to afford or might not be able to afford. Yeah? So this is a mass producer of products, uh, lots of dairy products. And dairy products are per se not very sustainable. Huh? Um, so he was really trying to push the practices of the company to change the way produce food that goes from regenerative agriculture to having, for example, different contracts with farmers. So one thing I found remarkable there is that he, um, that Danone introduced long-term contracts with dairy farmers to tease out or to, to allow them to think more long-term and to engage more in sustainable practices. In big issue in that sector is that the price of milk, for example, is very volatile. So it's very difficult for those farmers to, to make any, let's say, larger long-term investments because they have absolutely no idea or they have very little idea of how the price will be next month or maybe next year. So from their perspective, they had lots of disincentives to, to change their business practices and to do any investments. But by the non-offering them long-term contracts that was based on a cost-plus basis, so they estimated their cost, they engaged with those farmers, on the cost, they got a bonus on, on the cost, and the bonus was dependent on the quality of the milk, of course, but also of the company or the farmers engaging in sustainability practices. They also got some coaching there to change uh, the, the way they produce milk. So Danone helped, but also gave them incentives, financial incentives, but also helped them to free up room and, and maybe to allow them to think about how to produce milk in a, in a different way. right? And that was pretty, pretty successful. Um, it was successfully introduced and it, it, it allowed farmers then to engage in more sustainability uh, practices here. So I found that a rather, you know, not too complicated solution, but it changes the way we produce food and, and we put potentially produce dairy products. But in the long run, you said that potentially we need to get out of those businesses huh? because they're per se not, not sustainable here. So he pushed a lot. 
a lot of investments in Danone and actually plant-based uh, uh, products more. And then again, the production of plant-based products, um, he pushed Danone to um, produce those plants or to work with suppliers who engage in regenerative uh, agriculture and things like this. Of course, transforming a huge business like Danone is not easy. Uh, it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, him not being there anymore also shows how difficult it is, also in terms of satisfying the different stakeholders, especially those who have a financial investment in the firm. But at least he tried, and he tried that quite impressively, I have to say. And there's an interesting dimension to that uh, story as well. I don't, uh, I haven't followed it very closely, but I remember that one of the things he did, and I, I found it here, uh, also that he he was the one who changed Danone's le legal status to a uh, in, in French, it's called Entreprise à Mission. I guess it's something quite close to a B Corp or yes. something along those lines. Uh, and, and that's, I think, an interesting sort of throwback to what we talked about earlier, that a CEO can can do things in the role of being a CEO, but but he also has the opportunity to change or, or be part of changing governance structures more broadly that will remain in place also after he, he, he leaves. And of course, he was... Um, I guess it was activist investors who, who eventually got him out of the firm. But, but let me jump in there. So that's fantastic that you bring it up, right? So, I mean, it, it's a bit of both. So on the one hand, we see how much CEOs matter, right? So he is really bringing up the ideas and saying, we have to change the way we produce our food, but we also have to change the legal structure of the company. The company should acknowledge or should be able to acknowledge that they serve more than just shareholders. And, and to produce great products, every company says that to produce great products in a sustainable way. And potentially that means that you have to make trade-offs, hurtful trade-offs that might be a bit detrimental to, let's say, the profit margin here, right? But that are, at least at the argument, more profitable, but also more sustainable for the long-run future. Because the way we produce food, we cannot sustain for very much longer. So he was really pushing also to, to allow the company to have a different governance structure here. And as you correctly said, um, it, it tried to become, or it's becoming a so-called B Corp. Uh, it's actually, at least until a few months ago, it was the largest B Corp in the world. Um, most of its uh, American or business in North America is B Corp certified. Yeah? So here we can see how the CEO pushes a company to change its trajectory, its practices, but also its legal status. But it also shows that, of course, uh, I mean, or it has to be, or we have to be realistic here because it's, of course, not only the CEO. You need to have the owners on board to change the legal status of the company here. And here the owners, at least at, until this point, were very, very supportive, right? So, I mean, there was a huge agreement among shareholders when they decided on whether or not Danone should become a B Corp. Uh, and, and I think it was almost in the 90% of agreement uh, among shareholder votes to change the legal status uh, of Danone. And here, really, you can see that the company is also changing practices for a country or within an industry. Because now the law was changed. There's a possibility of, of becoming something like a B Corp uh, in, in the French corporate law. And it hopefully encourages other companies to follow suit. I want to take it further here, uh, Georg, and at the same time jump from, from one of the streams of your research to, to another one. Because now we're talking about, or we're talking about many aspects of the role of the CEO. And, and, and one of them being, you know, these kinds of... of influences and decisions on governance structures and so on a very different but but arguably equally important role that a ceo can take is through external communication through through speaking uh, being uh, being active uh, in in various uh, fora and in various uh, ways 
And, and I know that you have some ongoing work on what we might call CEO sociopolitical activism. Uh, and uh, this is an interesting discussion that I think is, is going on uh, in many places today. There's this question of how much and in which ways do we want CEOs and, and, and beyond that companies to take positions in, when it comes to social issues? This can be, you know, there, there's been a lot of noise uh, in the U.S. around companies uh, with regard to Black Lives Matter. Uh, we, we've seen it in, in, in many other uh, uh, questions as well. Think about COVID vaccinations. You know, it, it could be so many different things. Uh, and, and this, of course, is a big, a big question for a CEO and for a company. To what degree, in which ways and which position should we, should we speak up for when it comes to all of these big social issues, environmental issues, broadly speaking, ESG uh, issues. So could you perhaps take us a little bit into that landscape, what the questions are, what the problems are, and what what we know about this particular aspect of the CEO role? That's a fantastic question. That's a, it's a, I mean, I could talk for three hours about this. <laughs> we, have, we have time. And we can listen. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. I, we call it a bit like the new kid on the block in a sustainability uh, area. Um, and it's it's let's call it CEO activism. It doesn't always have to be the CEO; could also be the founder. Or some scholars also say it's 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 companies, social political activism. And usually, it is on a what we call a salient social political issue. So salient means it's discussed right now broadly in a society, in a given society, um, and it's usually on topics where. The opinion is somehow split. It doesn't have to be 50-50, but it could be, let's say, 30-70 or 40-60. Uh, so it's not on topic where 99% of people agree. Right? So it's really the topics where we tend to disagree, we tend to fight, politicians tend to fight, the media gets all over the place. And it's also a topic related to, to Black Lives Matters uh, in the U.S., um, topics to changes in, in the voting law, right? Georgia has been in the, the most recent example. Vaccination, uh, you know, should we make it mandatory? Should we not make it mandatory? Uh, Gender-neutral toilet. So it depends, of course, on the time. It depends, of course, on the country. Uh, but those are topics that companies, um, and, and especially CEOs, inc increasingly so take a public position. So they say we either for it or we either against it. Uh, or... Uh, we want to prevent this law, and here's the reason why we would pre want to prevent this law. And that's an interesting practice here, uh, because so CEO activism is different from sustainability practices or even lobbying. So from, from sustainability or CSR, it differs because it's, CEO activism is an act of communication. It's just talking. It, it might be followed by action, which we then might call sustainability engagement, but it doesn't have to be. right? So I'm against this law, or I think it's discriminating doesn't have to be followed by action. So it's an act of communication. And it differs, for example, from lobbying because it's in plain sight. I go out on Twitter, I go out on the news, and I say I'm, I'm for something or against something. Lobbying is very often done behind closed doors. And actually, most companies don't want you to know what they lobby for or what they lobby against. But CEO activism is a very public act of communication where uh, CEOs take a, a stance on a salient sociopolitical issue. And this has lots of implications. Uh, this, I mean, I have to say it up front, there's lots of things we don't know, <laughs> right? But this has lots of implications. So some, especially communications uh, uh, consultancy now say, you have to do it. <laughs> Generation Y or I don't know expects you to do it. Uh, they don't want to work for a company where they don't know where the company stands on certain issues. Uh, employees push you to take a certain stance and so on and so on. Um, so it's worthwhile to do. And it's, you can almost say it's like a business case for it. 
So doing it would you know, drive consumers to buy your product, maybe to be willing to pay a higher price. You get the better employees and employees are more motivated. And the empirical evidence for that is, is a bit more mixed, I have to say. Yeah, so a, again, there's very little we know, but let's, let's take the example of employees. There's a fantastic experimental study that has been published in Management Science by Vanessa Bobano that looks at employees in an online experiment and their willingness to do extra work, paid extra work. Yeah? When the CEO takes a stance on a certain uh, um, position, and the example here was uh, gender-neutral toilets. That was a big discussion uh, in the U.S., uh, two years ago, whether or not you should allow gender-neutral toilets. I know in Norway uh, that discussion was, was maybe 20 years ago, but okay, <laughs> different countries, different topics. What she finds is super interesting. Huh? So the argument that uh, employees will work more because you, you as a CEO um, have the same position on a, so, a salient social political issue uh, turns out to be wrong. They're happy if you have the same position as they have, but that doesn't uh, motivate them to work more. Quite to the opposite, those who disagree with the CEO's position, so let's say who are against gender-neutral toilets, uh, and then they see that the CEO speaks in favor of gender-neutral uh, uh, restrooms, um, they work less. And the reason is that they develop negative emotions. So they actually uh, refuse to do extra work here. So you, it might not have a motivating effect on those among your employees who agree with your position, but it might have a demotivating effect of those employees who disagree with you. So let's assume you have your workforce are split on a topic. Let's say it's 30-70. 70, 70, 70 agree, 70% agree with your position, 30% disagree. You have 30% of your workforce who are potentially demotivated uh, uh, in their work, uh, uh, yeah, less identify with the company and so on. So we have to be very, very careful here. Um, when it comes to employees. Same with consumers. Top argument is usually, hey, we want to know what does a company stand for for the products I buy. I tend to disagree. Not for every product we need to know what the political stance of the product is. Think of shampoo, a banana or something. You know, Do I need to know what their position is on a certain topic? I don't know. But the argument is it, it increasingly drives consumption decisions. Uh, and there's two working papers out there fantastically done. One is using cell phone data to see whether uh, traffic into stores changes when uh, CEOs take a position uh, compared to comparable stores. Uh, I think the subject they look at is uh, gun rights uh, right after a, 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 a shooting. And the CEO, I think, of Walmart at the time came out and said, OK, they're going to stop selling certain kinds of guns. Right. So that paper looks at, at, at food traffic and if that changes. And there's a new working paper also looking at actual consumption data um, in, in in response to CEO activism. What do these papers find? They find there's a bump in food traffic or consumption, but it's only temporary. It's very, very short. Yeah? So usually a few weeks, three, four weeks, and then everything goes back to normal. Actually, there's a reversal. <laughs> so a few weeks later, sales of the company that, that has taken the position that consumers have disagreed with actually increases to make up for the, for the loss in the sales right after that decision. So overall, there's very little effect when it comes to consumption. So far, that's what we know. Yeah? So the, the encouragement of some, let's say, consultancies, especially communications consultancies, that CEOs need to take a position on certain salient issues to increase employee motivation or um, to, to draw consumers to their products, we have to be careful, right? It, it might be there, but so far, the evidence we have, it's, it's, you know, it's more nuanced than that. It's more nuanced than that. 
But there's another inherent question I think that is super important. And, and I think to some degree your question hinted at that too is uh, from a democratic standpoint, is it is it a good thing? Do we want this for democracy, right? So some of the CEOs of, of companies who have spoken out are usually very, very big companies. Uh, some of them have budgets larger than budgets of some countries. Now, of course, these people already have a huge influence, right? Through their donations, through lobbying, through just making employment decisions in certain countries or states where they pay taxes and so on and so on. So, and they have an, a, a very prominent and exposed position already in our society. So now if they start intervening in democratic decisions where with hopefully democratically elected representatives of the population try to find a solution to a pressing question there, uh, representing different opinions uh, in the country, do we want those powerful actors uh, to intervene further? And the answer might be yes. Some would say yes, because they have a responsibility to do it. And they might give voice to, to, to groups that are not heard. And others say no, because if their intention is, is business-driven, uh, is driven by in, increasing sales, then no, they should not intervene. There's one more piece I wanted to, to speak about, and it's by, um, by a scholar from the University of Groningen, who has actually looked in which states in the U.S., do we see most occurrences of CEO activism? And it's a state that are politically most polarized, that we see most instances of CEO activism. So a question that needs to be asked is, for example, does CEO activism actually increase polarization or does it decrease it? And my sense is, I don't know, but usually I, I sense it's not helping. It's not helping. So we're, we're adding, we're putting oil into a fire, fire that is already burning quite highly on certain issues where people cannot agree on. Yeah? So, yeah, it's a new kit on a block, but the effects are very, very nuanced. There's a lot of things we don't know about it, but many of the, let's say, more positive predictions from a business sense, um, we have to be careful about them a little bit. This is very interesting, uh, Georg, and you introduced this new kit on the block, and, and you talked about, it in, in one way, CEO, CEO activism as a communication issue, and then it was more a strategic issue, and there are... You know, there. Where does this start and where does it end? Am I, when I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm just thinking of this ongoing case that we have right now with Spotify, uh, and and uh, yes, and 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 is that uh, you know with this uh, the podcast of Ro, uh, Joe Rogan uh, and what to do and 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 where should. Uh, Spotify, what should they do now? Do you yeah. have any thoughts on that? I, I know it's a difficult question. And, and before before you answer, uh, Georg, I could just uh, add that uh, this morning I read in the in the newspaper that uh, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek had uh, spoken to shareholders yesterday, uh, presenting results, and then afterwards um, addressing directly this controversy with the Joe Rogan versus Neil Young <laughs> case. And he, he was saying something along the lines of, this is a very complicated case. But I'm proud of how we've responded after concerns coming uh, from various stakeholders. And we, we need to be able to balance the creative expressions of content producers with the safety of our users. So he's, in some sense, he's, he's taking a sort of position there. It's not a very strong position. I think it's, it's relatively, you know, balanced or what word you would like to say. But, you know, but, but this is, I think it's an interesting ongoing case study right now of what we're talking about. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um... And even though, at least from my reading of the case here, is that 
he was pushed to take a position here, right? So, I mean, at some point they had to react, do something, uh, either say, I mean, not reacting to some degree is interpreted as having a position, right? And if, if you're in that position, then then you got to do something. Um, and, and that's an interesting part of the discussion on CEO activism as well. But it's a super interesting case. And I I mean, I engage a little bit on, on, on Twitter on some discussions, but <laughs> uh, you, you know how Twitter is sometimes it gets a bit too toxic, so I had to get out of it. But I don't know what they should do, but from my perspective, it needs to be discussed whether or not Spotify is the right actor to decide who can put which content on their platform. We might agree that, you know, that in that specific incident, um, you know, that, that actor might be banned from Spotify, but, you know, where does it end? I mean, who decides what we should listen to or not listen to? And, and if we allow, let's say, that, that certain context on one side of the political uh, um, spectrum gets banned, then what do we do if it becomes banned from the other side that we might agree with? Uh, and from my perspective is they should not be the ones who ban it. There should be a more, they should be more, but it, it's of course my position, it's there should be a regulatory body that is democratically legitimized, that is either elected or sent there by, let's say, government. Potentially, it's it's not enough if one nation does it, but potentially we need a, a, a cross nations a body who does it. But that is not run by business incentives, but that is potentially run by different incentives, maybe to prevent misinformation. But then again, we we have the problem that we don't know, you know, where does misinformation start and where does it end. I mean, of course, there, there are egregious cases, and potentially ninety nine point nine percent of us can agree that those. You know, information or the spread of such information should be stopped but it's very difficult to to say where the boundaries are right and and almost a lot of things that are said today are offensive to one person or another in, in some way so wh- where where do, where do we stop uh, where do we start and but isn't isn't this what you wake up in the morning thinking about you i, I started out asking you is 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 covid a governance issue and instead yes everything is a governance issue family life is a governance issue and also of course uh, dealing with with the global political political questions is a, a governance issue and here you have uh, spotify then and we've discussed facebook for many many years uh, is it just a neutral platform uh, or or is it uh, do they have some kind of editorial responsibility to uh, and 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 this is kind of an ESG is, issue, isn't it, for for social media? And, and isn't this kind of the first time that Spotify was put on the spot <laughs> for for this? And isn't this something that the 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 CEOs in the future and also as a democratic problem is something that we need to to reflect upon and that. Perhaps if if it's not an issue of 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 uh, CEO activism, I can understand, but it but it is an ESG issue for Spotify. Absolutely, and and as we can see, it, it's more and more difficult to to not be put on a spot. <laughs> I mean, you're up there, and if you don't react, that there's a reaction, right? And then things just escalate. So CEOs will have to react, and they will have to acknowledge that it is an issue. Um, but I think what helps us to acknowledge that this issue is extremely complicated to solve. And we as society, and again, it's a, it's a governance issue. I completely agree with you here. The question is just which actor should decide? Should it be the CEO of a for-profit company? Let's probably use it. Or should it be somebody uh, who is, let's say, an administrator or a, a democratically elected person or a democratically elected body or whatsoever? So the question is who should decide? That somebody needs to make a decision and, and needs to help all the companies to decide 
what can we, um, what kind of information can we allow on our platforms to be spread? What information should we not allow? Um, this is a slightly different question here. But I think what is important is that we put them on a, on a spotlight, that, that, we, that we can say like, hey, I mean, let's use Facebook, let's use YouTube. You guys use an algorithm to, to maximize revenues from advertising. And this algorithm tends to hope to keep people longer on the platform engaged. And how do you do that? You show them more extreme content. And this is a responsibility that falls within you, right? And it starts with being open about it. It starts with being transparent about it. It starts with communicating openly about what might be the disadvantages of having those algorithms. Now, but again, it's a governance issue. It's just a question who should decide. Um, definitely companies have a big a role to play here. I'm a bit more skeptical to let for-profit companies decide on what is allowed and what is not allowed. Uh, I would rather like to see it at least being regulated at some degree by, by regulators and, and through regulation and through laws that, that companies or regions such as the European Union um, agrees on. Yeah, but it's extremely. I mean, I don't want to be the CEO of the company at that point in time. Right? <laughs> you put on a spot, and again, rightly so, because these are things we need to discuss. I want to uh, shift gears, Georg, and make sure that we we touch on another aspect of of uh, your research on this these issues as well. And and here's my segue. It starts with algorithms, and the algorithms of Facebook have understood that I like compilations of people like Diego Maradona, uh, you know, Romario, Ronaldinho, Zinedine Zidane. So that algorithm probably knows approximately my age. Uh, and here's the segue. I want us to talk a little bit about the age of CEOs, <laughs> because <laughs> that is something that you have also investigated, and I, I find it a very interesting issue, not just when it comes to CEOs, but but really age as it relates to an age and sort of generations as well as it relates to sustainability. There's a big discussion about this when, when we talk about consumer markets. Is it so that millennials are more sustainably aware when they shop than than their parents and grandparents? We talk about it for, for employees. You know, is it so that our current students who are in their 20s now are more concerned with sustainability issues and therefore choose, you know, their future workplace with that kind of thing in mind, but you have done work on uh, the age of CEOs and how that relates to uh, their inclination to prioritize these kinds of sustainability issues. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the gist of, of, of that, you know, that question and, and those findings? What do we know about uh, the role of age in this uh, in this context? And, and, and it's a good question. It's a it's a it's a paper which is still an uphill battle to to find its uh, publication outlet. <laughs> I'm going to tell you in a second what the what the criticism of it is. But the basic idea we have is um, we want to understand that when a given population of CEO changes, so a, a new generation comes in and slowly replaces the older generation how much of that change uh, is driving changes in, in company sustainability practices here? And what we're building on is generational differences and what generations things are, let's say, important issues or pressuring issues of their time. Uh, and what we're building on is the idea of that our personality forms or humans' personality forms at a certain point in time of their development. Usually when we're kids, our personality uh, is, is impacted quite a lot. Uh, when we are in, in young adulthood or, for example, when uh, we start our first job. So 
the things, the topic that are salient during those times, so for example, that social civil rights movement or uh, the World Environment Day, questions related to the environment, um, the, the issues or the, the topics that are salient during the time period that those CEOs were uh, kids or young adults, they influence of what they think is, is important uh, relative to other issues. So what we what we're arguing in this paper is basically that older generations had put a lot of focus uh, on the community. So the idea of that you're part of a community and the companies have to contribute to the well-being of the community, and that employees are part of the family and you have to take care of of the family. You don't fire employees that quickly. Was more important relative to younger generations, whereas younger generation uh, for them to uh, increase workforce diversity, uh, equal rights across genders and different ethnicities and the protection of the environment are more important relative to older generations. So what we try to show in this paper is that there are those generational effects that allow us to understand a little bit the differences across firms' engagement and sustainability, again, related to the CEO, but then explaining it by the generation the CEOs uh, um, belong to. This is not to say that for CEOs of certain generation, um, a certain type of sustainability practices is not important. It's just the relative importance to one another changes a little bit. So we want to explain a little bit the shift in sustainability practices that we have observed by the change in the population and the generation uh, and the generational composition of the populations of, of CEOs here. And again, it's related to the idea that CEOs matter. Uh, and if CEOs matter for sustainability, we have to understand who they are and what do they think is, is the most important thing uh, when it comes to sustainability. And here, generations play a big role. Yeah, so that's that's the idea we have uh, in the, in this paper here. Yeah. Um, a, a bit more the basis here, also that we try to combine here the fact that some of our values change over time, and some are stable, at least relative to others. So, for example, we we tend to become a little more conservative the more we age. <laughs> but you know, Sven and Swain, you might have some differences, stable difference between the two of you when it comes to your political view, for example. And that continues potentially to stay there even as you age. Even if, if you both become more conservative, one of you might be slightly more conservative than the other. So we try to combine those two facts that values change over time, but a part of the values are also stable here. And we try to dissect the two to explain differences in company sustainability engagement. So that's a bit the idea we have here. I can't, I can't, uh, I just have to say that I, I remember a paper I looked at once, I forget who wrote it, uh, showing that CEOs who have daughters yes. uh, act more sort of in, in with sustainability in mind in their, in their uh, I, I don't know how robust those findings are, but I just, it just struck me as we were talking. And, and also, in addition, in, in your research, you also studied ex-military CEOs and, and looked at them. So, so again, I'm interested in CEOs, uh, I believe, and I show they matter. <laughs> so I want to know, you know, how do they matter? What characteristics matter and what drives it? So there's very interesting research there on, on the gender of your firstborn child, um, showing, for example, if, if you father a daughter as a firstborn child, become way more supportive of, of um, diversity initiatives and especially any initiatives related to increasing the chances of, of, of female managers, female board members, female employees. Maybe not surprisingly, right? <laughs> because you see, you want you want the best for your kids, right? Uh, so the gender of your kids changes how you see the world. Uh, this is what this paper there shows. And in the other paper where we look at military CEOs, um, here we wanted to, to understand a bit more of the, let's say, ethical dimension of decision-making here when it comes to fraud. 
in, in companies here. And uh, we wanted, again, with fraud, if CEOs matter, they also matter for fraud, unfortunately. <laughs> so we wanted to explain uh, differences in CEOs on how much or how much they're willing to break rules and regulation can actually explain uh, the occurrence of fraud or not. And we, we looked at that in the context of ex-military CEOs. So ex-military CEOs are CEOs who have at some point in their life before they became a CEO served in the, in the military. And when you look at the U.S., so they have served in the U.S. military. And the U.S. military, um, or the militaries generally, uh, one could say, is train uh, their cadets to follow rules. No questions asked, follow the order. Uh, your life depends on it and that of your comrades. So that's what they train them when they come into the military here. And again, it's the same argument that uh, there are certain stages in your life when your personality is formed. Uh, getting into the military is usually one of the stages. The military is very keen usually on breaking your personality first, then rebuilding it. Right. So our argument is here that when you when you are trained to follow rules and order, then later in life, even decades later, you're less likely to break laws uh, and regulations and hence to engage in fraud. So there's a typical example, ex-military are less likely to cross a street if, the, if there's a red light. <laughs> so even years later, it's just in them. It's just them. They can't help it. So we use that to say, okay, all right, that is potentially, that's how we can identify how for some CEO, it's, it's the normal, it's a part of their personality not to break rules and not to engage in unethical behavior here. And uh, we test that in the context of financial fraud and of option backdating. And we indeed find that those who have served in the military, that companies run by CEOs served, who served in the military, are less likely to engage in financial fraud and less likely to be entangled in option backdating uh, scandals. Do you have any data on how creative they are? If they don't break rules, one thing is like breaking the the, the real rules that, that that shouldn't be be broken. But do you have any data, your own or others, on on these kinds of CEOs and and how they are uh, in leading uh, innovation? No, no, and and that's a very good question. Uh, we we try to look at that a little bit. Um, so at least for organizational change, there's some. Um, I mean, with all the caveats that apply, it's not published work. They engage in less organizational change, so they're more conservative uh, in their thinking as well. Uh, and also, again, uh, not published work as a working paper out there, less innovative. Yeah? So, But again, it shows that that you, you potentially are looking for a certain type of CEO, <laughs> right? And if, if you are a company in, in a business that is more stable, uh, and there's certain industries where those CEOs are more prevalent, ex-military CEOs, than in other industries, then this might be the right type. If you need somebody who, you know, changes the way we do business, um, completely changes the trajectory of the firm, then maybe that's not the right kind. This leads me over to the to next question and maybe one of the last uh, today's in, in today's talk. I hope we could continue this talk uh, later on. But uh, your general general advice to board of directors i guess you you knowing so much about ceos i guess uh, people come to you and ask Georg, what sh what should we do uh, given you know given our company how, how it is do we need change or not as you just uh, just said um, international or, or not what kind of problems what kind of products and so on when they come to you what 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 are your general advice uh, on on hiring uh, ceos uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a $1 billion question. <laughs> um, so it, it depends on, on which kind of mindset they come. Huh? So sometimes 
you have discussions where they come in and say, we have to do this and that and this because the new generation wants this and this is the right thing to do and this is the only thing to do. And then I push back because I say, think about it, right? I mean, your, your arguments are not consistent. If everybody does it, at least from a financial standpoint, you're not going to have a competitive advantage because you're just doing what everybody else does. So if your argument lies within a business case uh, argumentation here, then I potentially have to push back. But if you think that's the right thing to do, then you have to be very, very, and, and, and I think this is a general advice, but it's also a bit obvious is um, be very careful and do your due diligence when you pick a CEO. Yeah. Uh, and it increasingly includes ESG questions now. It's not just can the CEO, has the CEO a past of delivering financial performance? Right. And if you want to increase your financial performance and you think you can do that through ESG, maybe you're on the wrong track anyways. Yeah? It's not as simple as it sounds. But ESG issues become more important, as we can see in Spotify example. So what do you do? What does your CEO do? He has to react. He has to potentially make a decision, not reacting as already a decision. Uh, do you have a CEO who weighs into all kinds of topics? Right. I mean, there's, 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 there's a few fellows out there on, on Twitter who just tweet on what, whatever topic that is out there. Is that the right thing to do? Um, so be very careful on whom you pick. Uh, enlargen the characteristics you look for when, when you search for CEO. ESG topics are increasingly important. So what is the history of the, of the CEO when it comes to ESG issues? Uh, what is the standpoint of the CEO of wading in on, on salient social political issues? Um, is there somehow, is the CEO interested in having a conversation with the board before taking a public stance? Or is that person just tweeting things out, uh, maybe at uh, 12 o'clock at night and, and those things? So I, I encourage board of directors to pay way more attention to factors just beyond the past financial performance uh, track record of, of CEOs than they have done in the past. Uh, I do have the feeling that many boards do that and are aware of that, um, um, obviously. Uh, but I also push back. So the CEO is not the savior. Yeah. So if the company is just a wreck when it comes to ESG, just to hire a certain CEO and then to think, okay, things are done now, fine, uh, at least on the surface, that's not going to work, right? So um, that also means that the mindset of the board has to change. Uh, the owners have to be on board and they all have to agree that they want to change the trajectory of the firm. Um, that will not happen in a year or two. That will take time. Uh, but I think if they do that honestly and if they agree and do that together as a team, um, they can actually change the way a company does its practices and its sustainability performance, while at the same time also making sure that there's a decent financial performance. Right? We should not forget that. Georg, before we let you run out into the boulevards of Paris, one final question that is inevitable when you put uh, three researchers into the same room uh, talking about research on sustainable business. You have... Uh, covered many aspects of the CEO role and, and more broadly of corporate governance as it relates to, to sustainability. Uh, and we've, we've covered many, but not all of those, uh, all of those topics. Um, but the big question, of course, is what are the unanswered questions, the unanswered questions that you want to answer in the future? So what, what are the, the big questions that you are going to be tackling in the years to come uh, in this field? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of my research will, is focusing right now on, on understanding CEO activism better. And the whole engagement of, of, of companies uh, um, taking a position on, on say, on social political issues. We know very little about Europe uh, when it comes to that phenomenon. Uh, most of what we know comes from the US and our norms, they're similar, but they do tend to differ. So I want to understand a little bit better how prevalent is a phenomenon in Europe and, and what are the drivers, the antecedents of it. 
Is it driven that employees or society or consumers um, would like CEOs to take a standpoint or not? So I would like to understand that a little bit more, the antecedents of CEO activism, uh, although the effects of CEO activism uh, on consumers, on employees, but also on investors. Are there certain types of investors who say, this is the type of company I would like to invest in, or this is the type of company I would not like to be invested in? So the antecedents and the consequences, and most importantly, the implications for our democracy. So is that something that we could perceive from that perspective as, as a good thing, as a bad thing, or on which contingencies does it depend as that we see it as a good or a bad thing? So this is a bit research pro a big research project uh, I'm, I'm currently having here. Um, and I think there's very little that we, we, we do not understand here. I'm increasingly also getting interested in, in initiatives about lobbying. Um, generally, I think lobbying is very opaque. Uh, in Europe, even way more so than it is in the US, and increasingly think to put or hope to put with, with colleagues here from the law department what we call the political responsibility of companies a bit more at the center of public and scholarly attention here. And maybe to introduce it also to the CSR ESG uh, as, a, as a new letter here that we also put in the political responsibility of companies. We see very often that unfortunately that companies publicly say something, it may be through CEO activism, and then lobby behind closed doors for the exact opposite here. So I think there's a lot of uh, work to do, uh, scholarly work to do, but also potentially with implications for policies on firms' political responsibility, and maybe to have it as a integral part of, of ESG or CSR uh, or sustainability more broadly. So these are the two big questions that, that currently drive my my research interest. We look forward to follow this work uh, going forward, Georg, and we are very grateful that you joined us for this adventure in sustainable business and uh, told us about uh, your work on, on the role of the CEO and the role of corporate governance for sustainable business. So thank you very much for, for this great conversation. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me and uh, you know, happy to come on board again tomorrow to talk about CEO activism a bit, bit more. <laughs> no, but, but thanks, thanks so much for, for including me and uh, it was a pleasure as always. You have listened to Adventures in Sustainable Business with Jurgensen and Peterson. Visit us at jurgensenpeterson.no okay. where you can find more information about this podcast and other information about our work. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review.